Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, I'm Daria Brown, and this week I am here with an old favorite, Jackie Bartell. She is a retired special educator, a DIR expert training leader in Rochester, New York. And we have just come off this high of having a whole month of DIR floor time, developmental individual differences, relationship-based model of Dr. Stanley Greenspan. And at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, there was a month long virtual conference. And in that conference, I presented my biggest revelations from being a floor time parent. So today I thought who better to discuss this with than Jackie, I wanted to share it with the listeners, my biggest revelations. And Jackie has worked with so many families over the years, uh, whether it was through school as a special educator or consulting um, through private practice or all of the things that you've done, Jackie. So I thought who better to discuss this with and, and hopefully the parents will find something that they can use. So uh, this was my title page from my presentation for those listening on audio. I have the link at affectautism.com to the YouTube video where I'm showing slides, but if you're listening on audio, I will be reading everything that's on the slides. So the first takeaway that I had for people, and Jackie, I imagine that you see, you've seen a lot of people whose child is newly diagnosed. And whether this is on the autism spectrum, whether this is Down syndrome, whether this is selective mutism or any number of um, disabilities that are listed out there, when people get pregnant, we don't plan on having a child who's going to need extra support. And so it often is quite a shock. And I know in my case, I had a, a more of a traumatic jump into this because our child was seemingly typically developing and had a seizure hospital back home, another seizure 12 hours later, hospital for three months with severe brain inflammation. That was an autoimmune response to something we'll never know what. And um, in his recovery, he started showing symptoms uh, that appeared to be consistent with autism. So just accepting that reality is always really a challenge for parents because you're letting go of all of these expectations that you had. And now you're jumping into this world of the unknown. What does it mean to have a child with a disability? Will I be able to support them? What's going to happen? And a lot of grief around that, which I talked about with Dr. Robert Nassif in the Ambiguous Loss podcast a year ago. Can I just jump in here? Because I think one of the things as you you share your your thoughts and you know, you you obviously you've started a numbered list. And I think that it's important for us to remember that although you've numbered the list, hmm. that, 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 that these things don't happen, all of the things that we're gonna talk about, they don't happen in, in order. They are part of a process. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to, to remember to share for parents because 
every one of us is on on a journey and we have to we have to allow ourselves the space and time to be on the journey in the time that it takes and to to work on different parts of it as it seems to fit inside the moment that we're living in you know because i think that you know as you you know you i you every time you share the, your story and i've heard it uh, quite a few times it's it it is always quite emotionally impacts me quite a bit emotionally to think about that experience and where your emotional process was at the time. And so I think that it's important to also share that when, when you were in the hospital with your son, what you were not thinking about was I have to accept reality. What you were thinking about was, were, were many, many other things. And that, that, that process happened perhaps a little bit later on. And so I think that, especially when we're talking about talking with parents, everybody has to remember that we are all in a process at a, on a different time frame. That's so important that you brought that up because <clears throat> number one, first of all, I did just randomly number these. So they're not any specific order or they're not um, meant to say that other people experience them on a timeline. So I'm glad you pointed that out. And yeah, the other thing that I, I didn't even think about um, was exactly what you just said. It probably took me four years to start to accept reality. And it's been a process ever since then. So I would say for the first at least three years, if not four, it was just living in mad panic chaos. Like, how do I make this better? How do I fix whatever my son has lost and get him back caught up with other kids his age. And how do I make sure that he gets all the supports and therapies in place so that he will be able to enter school along with his peers and act like nothing ever happened. Everything's back on track again. That is what goes through the mind. I think of a lot of parents and I think that, you know, having, having had the, the pleasure of seeing this when you presented it at, to, the, to the conference at ICDL, I think that you, so I know all the things that are coming and you have numbered except reality number one. And my suspicion is, is that you may not have even realized it because this one is the hardest one to do. And, and, sure. and, 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 and it's, it's, it is, as you said, it's a process. And we, it's always revisited. But I think what's Absolutely. really, what you're framing for us and for parents is that this is, this is something that all parents are experiencing. It's not, it's not a unique emotional experience that, you know, that, 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 that happens in isolation, that, we, that all parents are having this experience and that it's okay to talk about it and wonder about it. Absolutely. And, and this is why I brought Jackie on the podcast. <laughs> she brings up all these important points. So, you know, I, I think around that time, four years, five years in, and it's now been nine years since my son's hospitalization, I just, this popped into my head one day. And these aren't the things that I said at the time, I thought of something else, but I can't remember what it was. But, you know, you go through this period of 
if only I would have lived, you know, in the countryside where my baby wouldn't have breathed in all these chemicals because we lived in a brand new condo and paint and carpet and, you know, all these poisons that are in his system, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, and you say, you know, oh, if only my child would get better right now, everything will be fine. And it just hit me one day that, you know, that's like saying, if only I were born in 1870. And I don't know why I say 1870, that, that doesn't even make sense. But the point is, I wasn't born in 1870. Or um, if only I had had a girl instead of a boy. But I didn't have a girl. I had a boy. If only I had moved to Hawaii first. I don't know why I put Hawaii, but I'm just, it's just absurd examples because the point is I didn't like the reality that's right in front of me is I have this child, this child needs me. And with that comes the point that Dr. Nassif brought up in the first podcast on ambiguous loss that I did with him from an advocate whose last name is Sinclair. Whatever grief you feel is yours, not your child's. And so this, this is in blue for those watching the video, because on the blog post, this will be a link to that essay that he wrote or a blog post that talks about from the child's perspective, I'm not grieving being autistic. You're the one grieving it. So you really have to get over that, that grief and that there is no Holy grail. And, you know, a lot of parents, when, when they have that first, diagnosis and you know they're they're in that state of denial they they really are just in shock and looking for a solution and that's why you see everywhere so much targeted to parents of autistic kids buy this cure this will fix your child do this do that um, it's targeting vulnerable parents and a lot of it a lot of it is scams if not all of it not that I don't think that people offering therapies or assistance think that they actually might believe in it. I'm not saying everybody's a snake oil salesman, but everybody thinks that there's some kind of holy grail to solve a solution when you have that child right in front of you and they need you. I don't know if you had any other thoughts to add about that. Well, and I think, I think that, you know, there's the, another part of this is, is that, what what creates this and you know as you said you know if if only my child would or if i had only if i had only moved to hawaii i think what we're confronted with and and i think you 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 didn't share it in words but you sort sort quite 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 shared it quite a bit through your affect about that experience with your son is the fear the tremendous amount of fear that that one has as a parent when you're confronted with with the challenges and i think you know i always like to try to remind myself i mean not not in this, in this scenario but you know we have fear around many things is that the anecdote to fear is hope and when we can switch that around and you 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 look at the child you have in front of you they need you and we find that hope by being able to look at the child in that way yeah, and that brings me to the last point of love your child with your whole heart by accepting who they are. That process for parents of suddenly you expect things to be a certain way and all of a sudden it's all changed and that sense of fear that jumps in and 
what is this unknown that's that's in, ahead of us? And and I think the other piece to that is that you know because you gave those examples, everybody it, everybody's grief is their grief, and we cannot compare my my grief to your grief to someone else's grief, and and value it or say, well, you, you, this is worse than me. So I shouldn't be so upset. We, we can't, we, we have to be able to, to validate and legitimize those experiences within ourselves because they're okay. They're part of being human. And I did that, Jackie, uh, we were in the rehab hospital and I felt guilty for for being sad about what happened to my son, because when I looked around and saw the other children in the hospital, it was a brain injury rehab unit. There were kids that have been, had been in awful car crashes. There were kids that were, you know, confined to wheelchairs and feeding tubes and having seizures. Like I, I saw as I walked by and I, I felt guilty because my little guy was having fun and running up and down the hallway. And I thought, who am I to feel upset when my son is able to run and that child can't? And so I was comparing my grief to someone else's and everybody's on their own path. And um, you just have to look at, again, look at the child that's in front of you and accept who they are. And even if your child does have a complex disability, same thing. You accept who they are because they are alive. They are there. They need our love and support. They have a brain. They, they are functioning, whether it's through hearing, vision, touch, any of the senses that are functional. They are in this world and we have to accept and love them. So that is a huge process to go through when you're just expecting to have a child who's going to be like everybody else. And, 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 you know, having, having been, been by many parents' sides when they've gone through this process, it's huge, but it's also delightful. It's, it, it, it's an okay thing to go through. And, and we have to, and I, and I, and I say that because I want parents to, to get the sense that this is the, that, that, that it's, it, it's an okay process. It's not horrible. It's okay because all of a sudden you meet the child, the, the wonderful child that, that, that is yours and you, you find them and you meet them and you, you begin to delight in who they are. And I started the presentation showing a video of my son at six months old, laughing his head off at a measuring tape, snapping back. And then I showed a video of him a few years later in speech therapy with that exact same laugh. And, it, and my point was, this is the same child, post-injury, pre-injury. It's the same child with the same laugh and the same personality. And so... Um, pre-injury, pre-diagnosis, post-injury, post-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pre-injury hopes and dreams of unlimited greatness, post-injury, fear, what's going to be the future? Will he live independently? Will he ever go to school? Will he this and this and that? And having to realize that, you know what? None of our futures are written. 
nobody's future is written. Uh, one of us could get hit by a bus tomorrow before I get this podcast out. <laughs> Not gonna put, like nobody's future. And, and, you know, one thing I didn't say during the presentation was we lived in a condominium in downtown Toronto and it had a, it had a security guard at the concierge area when you walked in. And he was this lovely man originally from Egypt. He had a strong accent and he was full of life and, you know, woo, 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 woo. and he was so great with my son. He would say, Hey, lift him up, put him upside down. My son would laugh his head off and he'd say, how are you? And just wonderful with kids, wonderful affect, natural floor timer, had no clue what floor time was at the time. I didn't either. And I was talking to him one day about, I don't know what we're going to therapy. We're doing this. We're doing that. And he looked at me and he said, what in the world are you thinking about? Look at this beautiful child you have here. That's all you need. And that, and that was part of this, like, whoa, he's right. This kid is amazing. He's so fun. Like, why am I so worried about stuff that nobody knows for their kid's future? So on to my second revelation, which again, isn't any order or preference. But I think I kind of put them in this order because I, I was thinking about the nine-year history. And this one, um, take action over seeking explanations. And what I meant was that I spent a lot of those first four years ruminating. Why did things turn out this way? Why did this happen to us? What did I do? Was there something I did that made his brain react differently. I thought I did everything right. I breastfed him. I only gave him best quality um, ingredients once he could eat. Like, why did this happen? And feeling really sad and sorry for myself and for my family. Um, but you can change that around and focus on what you can control and what you can control going forward. And so that's what I mean by seeking explanations. It doesn't matter how you got here. This is where you are right now. And so take some action and do something to feel good about what you can control. Right. And, and Daria, that it, it, it goes right back into this accepting reality piece of it. Because when we do that, when we ruminate, as you say, we are trying, to, we, we are avoiding in some ways the process of, you know, as you so nicely set, said it, you know, that, that look at the child that you have in front of you, they need you. We avoid we, trying to figure out how did we get here helps us in some ways avoid the task at hand. And sometimes, sometimes we do that because we have to do that for our own emotional safety. So again, if you find yourself as a parent in this moment of, of sometimes ruminating about things, it's okay, just as Daria just shared that she was doing that, but somewhat be aware that that's part of, part of the process. And allow yourself that process. If you need to go to a therapist and talk to somebody, do it. If you don't have time to go to a therapist, you can now do it virtually. <laughs> COVID made everything virtual. Um, Friends, family members that you trust. There's got to be somebody. Uh, 
anonymous oh, okay. Facebook groups of other parents who have gone through what you've gone through. Allow yourself that, you know, I feel awful. I feel sad about this. I'm sad. It's your sadness, not your child's. And, and, and yeah, talk to another parent. Yeah. And the action piece is literally one day at a time and one step at a time, because I was always thinking, okay, how long until he's caught up? How long until he can enter public school or regular school, et cetera? I originally had thought before he was born, I would like him to go to a Waldorf school. Um, how long before I can transfer him from whatever specialized programs he's in into a Waldorf school or whatever. And when you start to think like that, you're missing out on the here and now. And I'm just going to say, um, yeah, I, I just put the rest of them down because I was wondering if the resource was the resource that you and I did, but that's coming up. <laughs> but um, this first point about ruminating over what turned out, how it turned out, feeling down, was discussed in this podcast with Dr. Kathy Platzman that I did called Avoiding the Blame in Floor Time. And we talked about a bunch of other things, but one of those things that she spoke about that resonated with me is Focus on what you can control right now, because if you don't take control, you're a victim. And if you're a victim, nothing's your fault and you don't have to take responsibility for anything that happens. So your child, Dr. Nassif says, needs you to be an energetic parent. You have to be that energetic parents. That, that's what kids need. And you can only do that one day at a time, one step at a time. Yeah, and I think I, I want to just 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 touch on something that you said. Saying that you know when when you're a victim, that means that it's not your fault, and I think that that's you're not suggesting that therefore, it is at any of any of the the situations that we're in as parents is anybody's fault, but 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 it, I think what you're what you're what you're saying is that we can't try to find blame with. The, to, to blame something or someone is, 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 is the bigger point. Yeah. And in this podcast that I'm referring to and linking to, we talked about a few different things, a lot of parents blaming themselves because they might go in and choose a type of therapy that is the only therapy they knew about. And they do that for five years or so. And it, it doesn't resonate well with them. Their child doesn't like it. And then they come to floor time. And all of a sudden, floor time's amazing. This is the perfect match. And they say, oh, my goodness, if only I had learned about floor time first, my child would have been so much better off. And they blame themselves for not having found the solution earlier. And we also talked about in the podcast how you can blame the therapists. If, if this therapist would do better or know my child better or listen to things I say, then my child wouldn't have had that meltdown. Um, you can blame family members. You can blame God. <laughs> you can be mad at God for putting you in this situation, whatever it is, but you've got to take charge and say, okay, you know what? This is my reality. 
I'm going to do what I can do and it's in my control. And what I can do is be that energetic parent my child needs and accept them for who they are. And any challenge that comes up, it's an opportunity to get to know my child better and find a solution together. Exactly, exactly. And so when you start taking action, you put your child in different therapies. Maybe they need speech therapy, maybe they need occupational therapy and you start, um, you get the diagnosis and all of a sudden they tell you what to do. Get your child into ABA therapy or whatever it is that all the experts say. And there's a tendency for a lot of parents to say, oh, well, I don't know anything. They're the experts. We have to do what they say. But you're the expert on your child as a parent. You know your child the best and believing in your gut feeling and instincts and Early on, my child had a lot of behavioral style therapies, and we even went so far as to purchase a desk with a seatbelt. And this is this guy did this, you know, as a hobby, built these desks for kids, put the seatbelt on. And, you know, they told us, like, strap your kid in and that way he can focus and we can do this therapy with him. Now, mind you, it wasn't torture because I was there using affect and being playful and Oh, here, let's do this. But it was clear my child was uncomfortable, like, uh, you know, maybe for a few minutes, this is exciting, but now I want to move and get out. And to force your child to do this therapy um, didn't feel right. So I, I put here, look to your child, are they happy? And I started asking um, some of these therapists, what is the point of this? And every single time, and I'm not kidding, Jackie, like this blew me away. Their reason was, we have to make him school ready. He's two. He's two. What do you mean, make him school ready? School will be ready for your child. Your child does not have to be ready for school. And I I have yet to figure out what that means. You know, and I I worked for, for, for a good number of years with preschoolers. And I remember people saying, we got to get them kindergarten ready. I said, well, what does that mean? It's, it's a concept. It's a cultural construct. But school will be ready for your child when they arrive. Your child does not have to be ready for them. And also, it just it was my gut feeling and instinct to say, Forcing him to sit, like practicing for sitting when he's older, that's not making him school ready. That's just making him upset and making him not trust me and and not solving anything. And, and aside from that, practicing to do a skill that is a five-year-old skill when you're two is unreasonable. We don't have those expectations of children who, 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 who aren't experiencing developmental challenges. Why should we have them for children that are? It's completely unreasonable. And, and I think and many five-year-olds can't sit still. I met, met, and many 59-year-olds can't sit still. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it, it's, yep. it's, it, it's, it is, it is, you know, when it's a, you know, it, and this is a conversation for another time, but it's compliance driven, not, not connection driven. Absolutely. So, I did a podcast a few weeks back with Bridget Palmer, who's a DIR expert and training leader, and she runs parent support groups. We talked about parent support groups, and she said, you know, you have to make sure 
you work with someone who works with you and who's flexible and who you feel comfortable saying, "Uh, I don't know about that. It doesn't feel right to me. And if the therapist doesn't be flexible, it isn't flexible with you and sort of says, no, you have to do this. You might want to think about finding another therapist. And I put a podcast that I did uh, before the one with Bridget, the one I did with Eunice Lee, because she really described nicely the process of working with parents in a way that I would want. Um, And because this is my top revelations as a floor time parent, Eunice really nicely describes the way she supports parents as a floor time therapist and, and her profession is a social worker. So she's really meeting the parents where they are at being flexible and this whole process. And that's the type of therapist that you want to find for your child rather than seeing them as God, you're working with them and they're supporting you and your vision and your, um, your, what you know about your child and what you don't know that they might be able to help you with. Uh, Kathy Potsman said this great. She said, you know, everything about one child and I know lots of pieces, uh, little pieces of lots of children. <laughs> and through that experience, she has insights and ideas. And then together you can figure out what's working for us. Yeah, I think I think that you know to, to 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 sum that up, there is only one expert on your child, and that is you as a parent. So there might be two experts, you know, the, the 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 two parents that are parenting this this child, and the moment that you find that you have a, a professional who is working with your child who thinks they are God or that they have all the answers without any input from you, you, you have to begin to question question what, what, what's, what's going on. And I think the other piece, you know, to, to Daria's point about her son and the little desk and the seatbelt, sometimes we have to stop and think about what would it feel like if I was asked to sit at a little desk with a seatbelt or a big desk? What would I say to someone who said to me, who, who is, you, you've probably already seen it. I'm moving all over the place all the time. How would that feel? Put yourself, in, put yourself in your child's shoes. And of course, when we say you're the expert on your child, we're talking young children. The goal is that our child is the, at the point where they're the expert on themselves and can communicate to us everything that they wish. But when they're not at that stage yet, we are their best advocate. Exactly. Uh, this one sort of came to me over the course of year, many years and things. Um, originally, I had learned about this idea of ritual and structures in place, hearing Dr. Gordon Newfeld speak, and he's a developmental clinical psychologist in Vancouver who talks about parenting and talks about the ways in which, you know, nature intends for children to develop and blossom and that we can't control that. And he had spent two years of sabbaticals some time apart, one in France in a small village and one somewhere in um, Southeast Asia in a small village. And both times he said it was just amazing 
how the culture had all these structures in place so that it really was the village raising the child. And, you know, from meal times together as a family to song and praise on different holidays, um, having those kinds of structures and routines where you know people in the village and um, you would then take instruction from them because you have some kind of attachment to them. Like if Mrs. So-and-so from down the street says, hey kids, don't do that, you're getting into trouble, that you'll be, you'll listen to them because that's part of your attachment village as opposed to now where it's, you know, single homes, people dropping off a million kids at one daycare where strangers are taking care of them and you expect the children to listen to these strangers who they don't even know. So um, those kinds of family structures and rituals will help children like ours thrive because they're, a lot of times they're very anxious about what's coming up next. And when you have structures in place, that really helps. And it can really prevent those catastrophic reactions because they know what's coming next. And Jackie and I talked about this in a podcast we did. I think it was called Behavioral Challenges at School. And then we did another one, Behavioral Challenges at Home, where you said, hey, we use our uh, calendars every day and our daily calendars on our phone. And if we didn't have that, how would we know what's coming next? And, and you'd be panicked if you didn't know, why can't our children know what's coming next? You know, and I think Daria, you know, when I think about this process for, for, for parents, many parents that I've worked alongside, because sometimes we, we, there, there's a suggestion to make a more formalized schedule and, 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 and to try, try to utilize those kinds of things for parents, it feels very um, cumbersome sometimes, and I think that's because it doesn't it 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 doesn't make sense. How could something like that make a difference? But if you have a child who has sensory processing challenges, they may not be reading the cues from the environment in the same way that uh, other children do, who who don't depend on a more formal schedule and routine because they read the cues and for our kids they're not reading the cues efficiently yet and so we have to support them with 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 visual supports or schedules and routines so that they can remain calm in the environment you know as you know that so they don't have those 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 catastrophic reactions and i think the other thing that's that's really hard about this is because when we're living in a situation where we have have a child who's having catastrophic reactions, we as the parent, we sort of start to, to live in the chaos and we find ways to just make it through the chaos and we feel as though we are surviving. And so it, sometimes it doesn't make sense to impose, to impose more of a structure. But I mean, I, I, you know, because I remember the conversations that you and I had, and I remember the conversations that happened before the conversations that we had to support you in that process. Yeah, absolutely. And this whole part about the predictable structures and routine over structured therapy is that the development is going to unfold regardless, but ideally with the appropriate support, it will unfold in a more ideal way, but you can't instruct or force development to happen. So 
we're talking about these predictable, predictable structures and routines in terms of dinner time, um, bedtime routines, etc. Uh, visiting grandparents every Saturday, things like that over structured therapy. That is, we're going to do this and teach these skills and all of this instruction, which you can't, you can't command a plant to grow. <laughs> and similarly, um, you know, just providing the right conditions and it will thrive. So uh, Maud LaRue had said in a podcast that we did, if parents keep with the behavioral model, they find they just have to keep doing the same thing over and over again, because it doesn't have meaning for the child. And having structures in place will help the child make meaning around what's happening. So they don't have to be as anxious. And the resource that I put for this revelation was the podcast with Dr. Tippy, how strategies don't support growth. So strategies are things that get us through the dentist appointment, get us through the doctor's appointment where they have to get their latest shots, um, get us through the dinner at so-and-so's house who we have to go to because whatever, although not during the pandemic, but <laughs> whatever kinds of things we have to get through, you can use strategies for that because guess what? If I choose the dentist office in town that has the big, huge screen with Sonic Boom cartoon on it, my son's gonna get through that dentist appointment a lot easier than if he's sitting there staring at a blank wall. <laughs> so, that's when you use strategies, but strategies are not going to help your child develop and grow. You can't, you can't teach, you, you cannot teach someone attention. You experience attention. You can't teach someone to, 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 to sit at the table. Relationship supports someone's desire to sit at the table. Exactly. So moving on to a fifth one. And this is an important one. Floor time is a process, not a goal. We can focus on the present, just like I said a few slides back, one day at a time. We can familiarize ourselves with different floor time practices bit by bit as you can assimilate them. And I gave the example that I started Affect Autism five years ago. And every week that I've written a blog post, I learned something and I assimilated something else about floor time. Someone just coming to the website now, if they are anything like I was nine, eight years ago, they'd want to read it all and like know it all and master it all so they can fix everything and make it better. And that's just not going to happen. I started, I heard about floor time about eight years ago. Um, I think I started taking floor time courses about five years ago, maybe six. I became the parent advocate three years ago. And it's still a process and I'm still learning all the time. Little bit by little bit. One of the presentations at the ICDL conference was from Mary Beth Stark, who is a speech and language pathologist at Floor Time Atlanta. And she's been doing this for, you know, almost 40 years or so. 
And she said, you know, I went through this period where I was like all about reciprocity and let's get these back and forth interactions. And then she said, then I went through this process where I was all about the fourth functional, emotional, developmental capacity and social problem solving and all of this. And, and I was just right, you know, head deep in that capacity. And she said, in the last little while, I'm all about pre-linguistics. And I did a podcast with her about pre-linguistics are social abilities. So that's her latest thing. So here's a person who's been doing floor time for decades, still assimilating bits and pieces of this model and of development with every new client she gets. It's a process. It is a process. It's about the going, not the getting there. Getting there, that's good. Yep. And there's no Russian floor time. And here's our podcast, Jackie, (laughs) the being versus doing podcast, Daniel Siegel, who's a a famous psychology guy um, who's written the whole brain child and numerous other books with uh, Tina Bryson. Is it? Um, He talks about being versus doing as well. And just about this process of just being in the moment bit by bit. You can try out new things. You can see how it go goes, but just stay in that present moment. Exactly. Exactly. And, it, and sometimes that's hard to do because we are, we are driven to think about what's coming or to wonder what has happened, but it's about, it's, it's about here, you know, inside this moment and that's really, really, really important. And, and that, that if we can stay inside this moment, it really supports our ability to think about the, to, to be part, to allow the process to unfold. Because the moment we start thinking about, well, down the line, we want this and that, or, or this and that, we want, want him to be ready for kindergarten. If that's what we're thinking about, we're going to start to go, well, I better, I better, I better, better do like the letters and the numbers and, you know, writing his name. And when in fact, that, that may be at this point, but we're here. So we have to stay inside this moment and know that it may come later on and it's okay. You know, and, and, and even when we look at development, each human no matter who you are, neurotypical or 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 or, or cha- with 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 neuro neuro challenges, we all do it on a different timeline, and it's okay. School organizes it, and that's what we all organize in our heads by. Is school says, well, these are these are first grade skills and second grade skills, and yada. Well, you know, I can tell you my own kids, one, one read when he was like four and the other one didn't read until he was in third grade. It's okay. It's okay. Development, development is a very personal process. And we, and, and when, when we're working with children and, 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 and parenting children with developmental challenges, we have to be even more respectful of that process. And to go back to Though that that those people that those experts who see themselves as God, the moment that they start to talk about, well, this is what so and so is supposed to do because this is their age. You really have to begin to wonder: Is this the best person to respect my child 
in their very personal journey. And sometimes you need to see those people because it needs to be documented in order to get funding to have supports for your child. And that's a grueling process. Um, you know, my son had to go to a developmental pediatrician and go through some assessment. And I got the report in the mail a week or so later. And it said, I found the child difficult to assess. And I thought, excuse me, like, are you kidding me? You found my child difficult to assess. You're trying to get him to do the most boring, tedious tasks nobody would want to do except a sweet, compliant child. And there's nothing wrong with being a sweet, compliant child. My mom tells me, and who knows if her memory is accurate or not, but I was the sweetest, good as gold, compliant child. I do know that in school I was teacher's pet every year. So yeah, I was probably that compliant child that will happily put the pegs where you tell me and match the pictures up that you show me. But what's the point of that? I mean, it's nice to have down that kids this age typically can do this. Your son can't. It's pointing out his deficits. If that helps get us funding so that we can find support that will actually help him, then okay, we're going to have to go through it. But um, at home, we're the ones with our children most of the time. If we can find school, daycare, whatever that we feel comfortable with, where we know our child's going to be respected and um, just allowing them to be who they are, that's the majority of the time. That's what we're looking for. So that's five of them. I actually have 10 revelations, but I think we're going to break it up into two podcasts. So thank you so much, Jackie, for, for going over these revelations with me. And um, I'll be thrilled to uh, bring the listeners part two next week, where we go over the next five. Okay, so, sounds great. Great, great plan. Those, those juicy five, six through 10. Something to anticipate and look forward to. That's right. Stay tuned. And you can find the blog post at affectautism.com where I put links to all of the podcasts that I used as resources and other things we discussed. So see you next time for part two. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.